You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, we're on. Okay, good. We're on, it worked, so let's get through. Happy Hanukkah, we're about to start. Okay, happy Hanukkah and welcome today to our class that we're going to talk about the story of Hanukkah and of course find a correlation to the Torah reading of the week, the characters that we talk about, but most importantly is to find its relevance and its contemporary application to our daily life and practices and how we can find it to something to energize ourselves and make our Hanukkah even stronger, healthier and better. A group of girls getting ready for their bat mitzvah who were learning under the tutelage of the, uh, there's a very famous Israeli uh, woman writer. Her name is Sivan Rav Havmehir. Second, okay, we're back to connect it. And uh, these group of bat mitzvah girls, on their, it was part of their studies, they came to visit the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, former chief rabbi of Israel. His son today is the Ashkenazic chief rabbi. He was the chief rabbi. He's now the one in charge of Yad Vashem. And while they came to speak to him and they had a little uh, talk with him, one of the girls asked him the following question and said, you know, I'm about to have my bat mitzvah. I have to get up there and give the speech. How will I have the strength, the ability to get up there? I, I, I can barely talk at a microphone in front of two people. How am I going to be able to, what, how do, and she asks him and says, you know, you give all these speeches and you speak in front of big crowds and big audiences What's the secret? How do you get over that self-confidence? How do you have the self-confidence to be able to speak in front of all these people? And Rabbi Lau answered her as follows and said, you know, you're right. I've spoken in front of people of all kinds and stripes and colors. I've spoken in front of Fidel Castro, in front of Michael Gorbachev, in front of the President of the United States, in front of the United Nations, the European Union. But I'll tell you, what is the secret? What gives me the strength, the impetus, the power to stand up in front of these people and be able to give, the, to give my talk? He says, you know, I remind myself that I'm not standing here all alone. I'm standing here of generations and generations of people who have gone through different challenges, different events in life, but even more so. All the other nations of the world, whether it was the Spanish Inquisition, the Auschwitz, the Holocaust, all the different nations came and went. The only one that's here is still is the Jewish people. And the very fact that may happen so many thousands of years ago was the Spanish Inquisition or whatever it may be, the bottom line is that we are here to tell the tale. And therefore, when I stand up and speak, I'm not speaking in my name. I'm not speaking in just Rabbi Lau. I am coming from all the generations previously. And the same thing also he tells this bat mitzvah girls. When you're standing up to speak, give that speech for your bat mitzvah, it's not you're just one girl in a solitude place or coming to give a talk. But you're actually standing and continuing the generations before you that you now have their courage and their, insi- and their excitement behind you and therefore you will have that confidence to give the talk you have to. The same idea is also when we talk about the holidays that we celebrate, regardless of what holiday there is. Every holiday, 
gives us a moment that we're able to reflect on the time that we're in. Gives us a moment to take a step back from all the different things that are going on in life and all of a sudden to look back and say, where are we? Where are we going? What should we be doing? And what the holiday does is gives us a moment to reflect based on the story of the holiday and the episode of what we're celebrating is to give us a better perspective in life of where we should be heading. Especially when we're celebrating the holiday of Hanukkah. With the holiday of Hanukkah, we talk about one Jew. A Jew, which we give him a lot of recognition and a lot of thanks. A Jew by the name of Matisio and his sons. That he is the pillar, if we want to call it, of part of the story of Hanukkah. Which is something unique. Because you know, you'll never find in any other holiday that we give credit to the person who's in charge of leading the pack. For example, we don't say in the time of Moses and Aaron when the Jews left Egypt. The Jews left Egypt that happened to be the leader at the time was Moses. Even though, yes, by the story of Purim, we say in the Viala Nisim, it was in the days of Mordechai and Esther, but that's one time mentioned. But it's part of the narrative is that they were the leader of the Jewish people, so therefore they led them to the victory or whatever may be through the triumphs and challenges that were at the time. All of a sudden, when it comes to Matasyo, we barely know much about the story of Hanukkah. But a lot of the story of Hanukkah is based on the fact, and as we say it in the prayers, in the day is of Matasyo and his sons, the Jewish people were then led to victory against the Greeks. It was the Maccabees, Judah the Maccabee. We know who the soldiers and the warriors were. What is it? What's with the story of Hanukkah that's so different than all the other holidays? Even more so, by all the stories of the Torah and all the holidays, we know basically the exact story that happened. The exact story by Pesach is Pharaoh enslaved the Jews for 400 years, 210 years to be exact. They had hardships and slavery, they crossed the sea. And it's all documented and clearly stated in the Torah, the holiday of Shuas, the holiday of Sukkot, of what exactly happened. The holiday of Purim, we have a Megillah of about 10, chap- 10 chapters that tells us again the story at length of what happened. The holiday of Hanukkah is very hard to find with any Jew- within any Jewish text, the story of Hanukkah. Most of it is in the Talmud, a lot of it is in the book called the, uh, the Book of the Maccabees or the Megillus Antiochus, but nothing really. And we have to like dig in the history to be able to see what happened. And what actually happened in the story of Hanukkah is even more so. Most of the cases in the story of Hanukkah, and most of them, sorry, in the story of every other holiday, is that they wanted to kill the Jews. What's a Jewish holiday? Technically, they tried killing us. We won. Let's party. The holiday of Hanukkah, in contrast to every other holiday, is not about a holiday that they wanted to kill us. It doesn't say anywhere they wanted to kill us. Not only it's the first time in history, in Jewish history at least, that the actual Torah wanted to be translated. They looked to be able to take the different um, Greek cultures and philosophies and to be able to integrate them within the Torah. So what was over here happening with the actual story, what was the fight? What was the struggle? What was Matasio and his sons fighting for? What was the struggle against the Jews at the time? What did the Greeks want? What actually happened and what transpired in the story of Hanukkah that makes it such a great miracle? And one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is that the story of Hanukkah underlines an underlying message. That the Torah is not just another book of theology. The Torah is not just another philosophy. But the Torah is something which is fundamental to our belief and understanding that this comes from God, that it's divine. The Torah in itself is something that connects us, the Jewish people, with the Torah. The Torah is not just a history book of what happened in the past. 
It's not just a theology, a theological uh, thesis about ethics and about morals, but it is a way of life and a direction and a roadmap for the Jew to connect to God. What does this mean? So let's go back a little bit with the story of Hanukkah and talk about the story and its history, and then we can have a better understanding of where we're coming from and what it's all about. So let's take the story of Hanukkah. What's the story of Hanukkah? It goes back 2,200 years ago, in the middle of the Second Temple. Second Temple era, it's about 166 BCE, before the Common Era. Israel was split between a war between two empires at the time. In the north, there were two Greek empires. In the north, there was the, in Syria, was the Salakos Empire, and in the south was the Talmayan Empire. Talmai, Thalman. These two kingdoms, Greek kingdoms, kept on fighting with each other, and because Israel was smack in the middle, it was a tug of war. One time it was under the Assyrian Empire, one time it was under the Egyptian Empire. The one that actually tried to impose on the Jewish people to translate the Torah into Greek, that was the Egyptian, the Talmayan Empire. These two families, they were part of what we would call the Hellenists. Hellenists are people which we would call... Uh, fellows that decided to culturize. They were from the Greek culture. They were the ones who sanctified the body, recognized the body is the ultimate empire, and therefore if a person gets sick and old and frail, they would kill them. They were the ones that instituted the Olympics. They were the ones that made those figurines and those statues, the naked statues, because they believed in the actual belief that the body is superior to anything else and all the different gods that they had. And it's a philosophy, and it was, we can call it probably the mother of Western philosophy that we have today. Or European philosophy, the concept of sport, exercise, continuously overemphasizing the beauty, the looks of the body. At those times, in the time of Hanukkah story, the Salukus, the ones that were the Assyrian Empire, are the ones that were victorious over the Egyptian Empire, and Antiochus Epiphanes was the one, the fourth, who he became the king, the ruler of the time, the emperor. Antiochus himself was a very narcissistic individual, gave himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the god, but the Jews translate Epiphanes in a different dialect, also means the wild one, the madman. And he decided, Antiochus decided, that he wants to make all the people under his dominion one culture, one theory, one belief. He was the one that waged war against religion waged war against the people that were under his um, sovereignty, that forced them that they should have to give up their religion. Antiochus therefore decided, and because his Assyrian empire reached over the area of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, he therefore stopped and did not allow the Jewish people from bringing sacrifices in the Holy Temple. He did not allow the Kohanim to serve in the Holy Temple and ejected and removed the holy priest, the high priest at the time, who was Matisio from his job, and instead appointed a Hellenist, and they were called the Misyavnim, which were Jews who assimilated and became Hellenists and made him the high priest, and he made him the one in charge. And unfortunately, this fellow, this Hellenist by the name of Manilus, was one who desecrated all the holy uh, vessels in the temple, gave it over to the king, and instead of bringing sacrifices, was bringing idolatry. And built all these different types of monuments and statues, all of Hellenistic and Greek 
uh, ideology. The king, Antiochus at the time, in part of his decrees of trying to destroy the Jewish people, also made a decree against three major aspects in life. Taking the three fundamentals of what a Jewish life or what life is about, Oilam, Shana, and Nefesh. In general, in Judaism, every single part of Judaism can be split up into three parts. Oilam, how it affects the world, Shana in the calendar of time, and Nefesh, how it affects the individual. For example, just to take the opposite in holiness, Yom Kippur is the holiest place, the holiest time, and the holiest person all coming together. Antiochus is wanted to attack those three, place, time, and person, and attack them on the Jewish core. Therefore, he forbade, number one, circumcision, which that separates and designates and shows the uniqueness of the Jewish person, as well as the Greek philosophy was not touch or to mutilate the body because that was sacred to them. At the same time as well, he also forbade Rosh Chodesh to be able to sanctify the months because that was the time which made the Jewish people unique. Everybody went by the solar calendar, the Jewish people that went by the lunar calendar, which that showed their uniqueness as well. And then he forbade the observance of Shabbos, which that had to do with action in the world, which again showed the uniqueness of the Jew, how they observed the Shabbos while everybody else worked on the Sabbath. And the Shabbos was given specifically to the Jew. He didn't just stop by making decrees. He looked to enforce his decrees in any way he can. And with that, he decided that any woman who would circumcise their child, they would be killed together with their child. Any, ch- any Jew who was caught keeping the Shabbos was killed, or any Jew who was, killed, uh, was caught revolving his calendar around the lunar calendar was again killed. There was actually a story where there was a terrible story where we talk about Han and her seven sons, where, she try- where the king Antiochus tried to get them to serve to his idols. They refused, and until the final one saw that he was giving up Pope, he dropped a signet ring, and he told them, why don't you bound down and pick it up in front of the idol, which to which the kid refused, and that kid was killed, and then Hannah herself asked, if so, if I lost seven children, what is my life worth? And she died as well. But over here, then, it tells us about another story, where about, 10, about a thousand Jews who were keeping the Shabbos went into a cave in Modi'in to observe the Shabbos, and the Greeks heard about it, and they went and put a fire by the opening of the cave and killed everybody in there. Again, these were terrible atrocities that the king Antiochus was doing to the Jewish people to be able to stop them from observing and keeping the commandments the way they should. But then something out of the ordinary happened. Something more that finally struck a chord and hit to the core of what was going on over here. An event that happened in the city of Modi'in. In Modi'in, which was the city where the story of Hanukkah began to unfold. A fellow, a Hellenist, decided, a Greek individual decided to put an altar and put an idol on the altar. And he tried to force the Jewish people to bring a sacrifice to that idol on the altar. Matasio's soul was going on, and in his passion he took this Hellenist and killed him. When the Greek army and the Greek Antiochus heard that he killed the Hellenist because sins, he brought an idol, a sacrifice to an idol. He said, I'm going to stop these Jews. And sent 50,000 soldiers to the city of Modi'in to fight against the Maccabees, Matasio and his children. However, as you know, the Maccabees, they did some guerrilla warfare. I even heard that in West Point, when it was in Vietnam and they were being attacked with guerrilla warfare, that they were studying from the ways the Maccabees worked, from the book of Maccabees, because they were the first in guerrilla warfare. 
They took a role of warfare. They knew the best. They knew the caves of Modian better than anybody else. And whenever the Greek army was coming, they ambushed them and they were fighting with them. And for three years, you know, a war went on. In fact, the war continued even longer, according to some, according to some 25 years. But at least we know three years this war went on. Back and forth. Until finally, after three years of fighting, of intense fighting, of back and forth, the Maccabees of a small army of a few thousand fighting against, waging a war, thousands and thousands of uh, the superpower of the world at the time, was able to knock them down, and they waved their white flag, and the Greeks left. When the Greeks left, they didn't just leave the Modi'in, but they wiped them out of Jerusalem, they wiped them out of most of Israel, and the Jews were able to live. And that's when the story of Hanukkah comes about. This was the five sons of Mathesio and his sons who were able to overcome the Greek army. And on the 25th of Kislev was the day that finally they can work on rededicating the temple. The Hashmonoim who were determined to rededicate the temple from all the idolatry that was there, they looked to clean and to wipe out all the idolatry, but they desired one thing, to light the holy menorah to bring back light into the world. But there was one problem. All the oil that was there was contaminated. According to Jewish law, that if a Ninanju touches the oil that had to be used on the Holy Temple, automatically the oil is contaminated. And what did the Greeks do? They went specifically went and they contaminated every single little bit of oil that was there. Until finally one Jew, one Kohen, found a little flask of oil that was pure, untouched, uncontaminated. But the problem was there was only enough for one night. But miraculously, they put it in for one night and the oil lasted for eight days. Interesting thing you find over here, that when we say the prayers of Yala Nisim, and when we sing the Aner Saladu, there are three terminologies that we say. Allah Teshuais, on the salvations. Allah Nisim, on the miracles. Val Niflois, and on the wonders. The Rebbe explains that why these three terminologies. Allah Teshuais, the salvations, is the salvations which talks about a salvation which comes from seemingly an uneventful event, not necessarily miraculous, which was at the time in Modi'in that they killed the people, the guerrilla warfare. One can translate, okay, they were just very good tactics that they had, and so on. But then there were a few, the, Egyptian, the Greeks came and started attacking them even more. So you needed Nisim, you needed miracles. And then what's wonders is that they knew that the oil lasted for eight days. So you have the three levels. You have the salvations, which is the way the war started. Nisim, the way the war prolonged itself. And then Niflois, which is the wonders of how it extended itself into the miracle of the oil. But now over here we come to an interesting dis- debate. When we talk about these three, these different types of miracles that happened. What was the debate? What was the argument between the philosophical difference between the Greeks and Matasio and his children? What did the Greeks want to do to the Jewish people? Why did they want to translate the Torah? Why did they want to bring, and why were they so overemphasizing and accentuating the body over the soul? What was their interest? And the Talmud tells us as follows. And the Medrash explains. The Medrash says that what they wanted was that the Greek Empire said, told the Jewish people, write on the horn of an ox that you no longer have a part in the Jewish God. They wanted them to concrete or to monumentalize and to make it part of something and say that they don't believe in God. 
But why out of all things that they want them to ride it on the horn of an axe? What does the horn of an axe symbolize? What does this mean? I understand that they wanted everybody to see that they don't believe in God. Okay. Write it on a big piece of paper, get the biggest banner, have a plane fly around and show it. Why the, cor- the horn of an ox that they wanted to show it on? What is he telling us? So there's an interesting interpretation that says, uh, from a fellow by the name of Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, he was one of the great uh, scholars from the previous generation, the head of the yeshiva of Slabotka. He was about a rabbi for about 20 years in the city of London. And once in London, he was going to a museum, and he saw all these different old uh, artifacts from many years, thousands of years ago. And he saw a baby's bottle, and attached to the baby's bottle was made of a corn of an ox. And it was like a little hole, that's the way the baby's bottle was, that they would empty out the inside, pour in the stuff, and then it would drink, I guess, from a little hole. What he said, when he looked at it, he says, now I understand why they wanted him to write it on the, corn of an o- on the horn of an ox, was basically saying, inculcate the children from very young gold that they shouldn't believe in God. That's what they meant. It was a metaphoric terminology saying, put it in the kids' bottles that they, show, they don't know about, the, uh, that they don't believe in God. That was his, uh, his interpretation. But then there's another interpretation, which is taken based on a very interesting scholar by the name of Reb Nassim Nata Shapiro. He was a great Kabbalist that lived in Poland about 500 years ago, the rabbi of Krakow. He wrote a book by the name of the Megala Emukis, which means Reveal Secrets. And at the end of his book, most of his book talks about 252 reasons and explanations of why Moses wanted to go into the land of Israel. But he also has this interpretation. And he says as follows. Antiochus, numeric value of the word Antiochus, is the same numeric value as the name Yosef. Yosef, our forefather. He was a Greek king, Antiochus. And he also was trying to undo everything that Yosef was all about. Yosef was blessed by his father. We're going to find in the book of, at the end of the book of Genesis, in Parshas Vayechi, his father calls him an ox. He calls him, my firstborn ox. He gives him the, strength, the ability, the strength of an ox. Yoshua, who then later goes on to conquer the land of Israel, is called that he conquered it like an ox. The Greeks' opposition was the opposition to what Yosef was all about. They wanted to show that Yosef made a mistake. What does it mean? They wanted to prove that whatever Yosef was about, the conquering of the land of Israel, the ability to be a Jewish king, we are opposed to that. Ride it on the corner, on the, on the horn of an ox, showing that you don't believe in the land of Israel, is because they wanted to show Yosef is wrong. But what's Yosef? What do they have for Yosef? What about Yehuda? What about Levi? What about everybody else? Why Yosef? Another interesting thing that we find in the Talmud when it comes to Hanukkah, the Talmud in the tractate of Shabbos, it's interesting to note that there is no tractate on Hanukkah. There's a tractate of Purim, there's a tractate of Pesach, there's no tractate on Hanukkah. And the tractate of Shabbos discusses the laws of Hanukkah and it talks about what kind of oil, when it talks about the oil that you have to use for lighting your Shabbos candles, it also then goes into the discussion about Hanukkah. And the Talmud asks the following question. My Hanukkah, why are we celebrating Hanukkah? Rashi explains, for what miracle are we celebrating Hanukkah? And the Talmud goes on to explain and says that there is on the 25th day of Kislev, there are eight days that we don't fast, we don't eulogize, we don't, make any, we don't accentuate any sadness. And why is that? Because when the Greeks went into the Holy Temple, they contaminated all the oils. 
And they only found one jug of oil, and with that we celebrate, because it lasted for eight days. And with that, our question is, what did the Greeks have with the oil? What do they care about the oil? If you want to destroy the Holy Temple, there are so many other facets that happen in the Holy Temple. There's the incense, there's the sacrifices, there's the altar, there's the ark, there's so many things. And if you want to destroy the temple, why the oil? Destroy the menorah, that lit the oil. Go for the big stuff. Why are you looking for the little stuff? What do they have against the oil? Not only that, if you wanted to get rid of the oil, pour it out. Why just contaminate it? Why just play with it? Why just touch it? And then that the very fact that the Talmud asks, why Hanukkah? What reason? What does it mean, what reason Hanukkah? To forget the reason why we celebrate Hanukkah. So it seems like the Talmud over here is asking something unique. That the Talmud over here is telling us that when it comes to the story of Hanukkah, it's so differently celebrated than every other miracle. The Talmud is asking a question, if you look. The miracle of Purim, the Jewish people were saved. How many days were celebrating? Only one. The miracle of Hanukkah, we were celebrating eight days. Why eight days? It took 14 years while they were fighting against the great empire of the Greeks. There were blood spilled. What do you mean why we're celebrating a Hanukkah? Purim, there was also a war and we celebrate. So why are we celebrating Hanukkah? Because we won the war. But the Talmud's question is, yes, I understand you won the war. But is that a reason why you should celebrate eight days? The Jewish people won the war in Purim. They only celebrate one day. But then the Rashi explains to us and says, no. The question of the Talmud is, what miracle here demanded that I should be able to celebrate for eight days? But then there's another question. Every Jewish holiday, there's food involved. We won, there was a war, we won, let's party. The only holiday that you're not obligated to have a special meal because of the holiday is Hanukkah. We eat latkes, we eat donuts, but that's not a meal, as your mother would tell you. This is only a snack. It's only customs of things that you got to eat. There's nowhere in the halach in Jewish law that says you have to have a Shabbos meal or a Yom Tov meal in honor of Hanukkah. There are some that say, yes, you should enjoy more meals. You should have more of a celebration. But there is no obligation to sit down for a mitzvah. On Purim, one of the four mitzvahs of Purim is to have a Sudas mitzvah, to have a meal. So why is it that when it comes to Hanukkah, first of all, all of a sudden the Talmud starts asking what the miracle is for, why we do it, how we do it, and also that there's no, and it's for eight days, and why is there no meal for it? So we're going to look at, based on the t- teachings of Nachmanides and the teachings of Hasidism, of what the concept of the war of the Greek was over here, and with this we'll be able to understand better the miracle of Hanukkah. Many times we find Jewish people who have a lot going on in their life. Look throughout history. Jews, whether suffering under communist Russia, Jews that were sitting in Siberia for 10, 15, 20 years, Jews in Auschwitz about their life to be killed, they can have complaints about God ad nauseum. And then, but yet, it comes to a Pesach, it comes to a Shabbos, and they're careful. They don't want to desecrate the holiday. You'd think God put them in Siberia for 10 years because they were teaching Judaism. They would have all the excuses in the world not to observe. But instead, no. They're careful, even more careful probably than people that are not sitting in Siberia. I'm talking about religious Jews. 
Why is it? Where is it? Where does it come from? That concept, that idea, that a person is willing to go to self-sacrifice to follow a commandment what God told them. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It would only make sense that if somebody upset you, you don't listen to them. If somebody upset you, you recognize that he upset you, you say, what do I have to do? I don't have a relationship with you. But instead we see people who believe in God and therefore they know that whatever is happening in their life is from God, but then they are careful to the extent of still self-sacrifice to follow the, lead, the letter of the law to its fullest without compromise because they crave that relationship. Why? Where does it make sense? And the answer is that this is exactly what the Greeks couldn't understand. The Greeks couldn't tolerate such type of behavior. To the Greeks, theology, wisdom, philosophy, that all made sense to them. That was good. They were able to accept that. But the moment somebody makes a choice to accept upon himself a certain yoke of observance and following commitment, if you want to call it blindly, regardless of what happens in their life, beyond intellect, that they couldn't understand. That was something which was foreign to them. That was something which didn't make sense to them. The very fact that there's something called the Torah, and that the Torah came from heaven, and that every single facet of the Torah is a lesson and a teaching for every single thing we do in every part of our life, that could, they could not tolerate. Wisdom, theology, that made sense to them. The Torah is the most, you want to call the Torah the most beautiful, smartest book in our world? We'll accept that. But the very commitment to the Torah, that it obligates the person to do something, this bothered them. And the fact that a Jew, right before he studies Torah, recognizes the holiness, the sacredness of the Torah, makes a blessing that they're learning Torah, kisses the Torah, shows their love for the Torah, they refuse to believe in something greater than themselves. The, the Greeks were all about themselves. They were all about their own bodies. They were all about accentuating their ego. To believe that something is greater than themselves that they couldn't tolerate. And this is what Nachmanides tells us. Nachmanides says those that are intellectuals who believe that they can only understand things that they feel that they only want to appreciate things that they understand with their intellect. This is exactly what the Greek philosophy was about. As in the words of the Medrash, the Medrash says, if somebody will tell you, there's intellect by the nations of the world, believe them. Yes, there's a lot of intellect. There's a lot of smart people, not only Jews. But if they're going to tell you there's Torah by the nations of the world, don't believe them. Because the only ones that have a relationship with God, that have a commitment of absolute self-servience, regardless of what happens, are Jews. This is exactly why we, what we say in the Chabad custom, as we know, and in all the prayer books, the Chabad Rebbe has explained this throughout the generations. If we look in the prayer that we say in honor of Hanukkah, we say, they, to, they ought to destroy us and make us forget your Torah, mitzvah your commandments. They had no problem with Jews studying Torah. They had no problem with Jews doing observances. But as long as it's not divine, as long as it's not connected to God, the moment you say God told you to do it, boom, you're not allowed to do it. This was also the debate when it came to the oil. 
Of course the Greeks wanted the Jews to light to the menorah. It was part of the beautiful aesthetics that was in the holy temple. But then why didn't they contaminate all the oil? Why didn't they go against the incense? Why didn't they go against the sacrifices and all the other beautiful things that were in the holy temple? Because they recognized and understood that the laws of purity and impurity. What makes this oil contamination? What makes the oil contaminate? Only the very fact that they touched it. That means because God told me it's contaminated. It's not logical. It's illogical. They were against the illogical part, the supralogical parts of Torah. And therefore, what they looked to contaminate the oil, they didn't care about pouring out the oil. They wanted the oil there, but they wanted to show that we don't care about something that's divine, something that's godly, something that's illogical. If logic mandates it, it makes sense. So beautiful, light the menorah. But why if I touch it, does it become contaminated? That they were against. And because of that, they wanted to contaminate the, uh, the oil. Even more so. There's something deeper within the oil. Oil, by definition, symbolizes intelligence. Why is that? And actually, the Talmud has a, uh, a learned from an actual episode. The story, a very sad story that happened, which was that Amnon, King David's oldest son raped his half-sister. And because of that, his sister, the sister's brother, which was Avshalom, wanted to get back at King, Do uh, King David's oldest son, Amnon, and sought to kill him. And because he wanted to kill him, King David decided that he's going to, so to speak, cut ties with his son, Avshalom, which caused because Avshalom killed his older brother. And Yoav, who was King David's general and nephew, was looking for somebody that can mediate and make peace between King David and Avshalom. And he went to a city called Takua. And he found a woman who the, who the Torah calls, or the prophets call us, a Isha Chachama, a wise woman. And over here, and she tells King David a story about one child of hers killed another child of hers, and he asked her, how would I then console them and King David understood what the story was and then that's when he sent to call off Shalom and he made a peace with him he wanted to make peace with him but the Talmud asked how is it that the people of Takua why were they considered so brilliant that when Yoaf went to find the woman he went to look for the uh, somebody from the woman from the city of Takua and the Talmud explains that because they had olive oil there they were pressing olive oil that plenty of olive oil there it was common by them Wisdom. They were smart. Olive oil and wisdom work one on one with the other. The Greeks, what was their job? What were they looking to do? They wanted to contaminate not just the oil in the holy temple, not just to show that they don't believe in anything divine, but to take it even a step further. They wanted to contaminate the wisdom of the Jewish people. They wanted to take the wisdom of the Torah and bring it down and make it like the wisdom of every person. They wanted to show that the wisdom of us individuals, of any individual, of any person is the same. There's no uniqueness to Torah over anything godly. The Torah's wisdom is just like any other wisdom. They wanted to be able to say, learn Torah, study Torah, but study it because it's nice, it's beautiful, it's a wonderful book, it's very philosophical, it's mind-intriguing, it's stimulating, and all the other things. They wanted them to learn Torah not because of its infinite divine wisdom, but because of its intellectual character that it has on it. They say a story that the Alter Rebbe, 
the first Chabad Rebbe was once having a conversation with some of his Hasidim about Socrates. Socrates was one of the great founders, if you want to call it, of Western civilization. Socrates, what? Oh, Socrates. Socrates. Did I pronounce it wrong? Socrates. There you go. Socrates. So Socrates, and he used to a lot of times have debates with the uh, scholars of Athens against their proposed ideology. And he wanted, well, you know, he wanted to bring in one more Western and more modern civilizations and ethics. And because of that, because of his dialogues that he would have in the main street and in the mainstream media, if you want to call it, they then decided the government were worried about his independence, that it would cause to a coup and cause to a revolt. And because of that, they put him in prison and they were going to kill him. Now, Socrates, did I say it now correctly? Okay. Socrates had the opportunity to escape prison. And he decided he's not going to. And he said, because I am a citizen of the country and I will accept its rule of law. And because they sent me to prison, even though I can escape, because I want to prove my point, and therefore he didn't escape and he stayed and he died in prison. The Al-Tarebbe said that when Socrates died, he wanted to claim martyrdom. He wanted to claim he died for a good cause. He's just like Abraham. Same way Abraham went on self-sacrifice to be able to perpetuate and talk about monotheism and teach the world about God. So too, he wanted to teach the world about ethics, Western civilization, and cultures. And the Al-Tarebbe said, they told him there's a big difference between you and Avram. You fought for what you felt was important. God, Abraham went on self-sacrifice for what God felt was important. That's the difference between the Greeks and the Jews. The difference between Matasio and the difference between the Greeks at the time. Matasio was about fighting for what God wanted, the sacredness of the Torah, while the Greeks were about throwing the greatness of the human. This is pontificated, and this is even more clear when we look at who a person Yosef was. Yosef, in this week's Torah reading, we find that in this week's Torah reading and in last week's Torah reading, Yosef was one of the first people in history who were, he had to live amongst non-Jews. Most of the other forefathers lived in the desert, lived in the farms, lived in the you know, shepherds, didn't have to interact with the nations of the world. As much as Abraham went around teaching people about monotheism, but at the same time, he had his tent, you came to his tent in the desert, and you went obliged by his laws. Yosef was a person who had to personify the concept of being amongst the, Jewish people, amongst the nations of the world, and at the same time being a proud Jew. Talking and always embracing God's name. Even in any part of Yosef's life where you look at it, you'll see that while Abraham was a person who publicized God's name, Yosef was the first one to talk about living with God in every part of his life. Number one, in this week, last week's Torah reading, he is given a job. He's taken away from his brothers after 20, for 22 years. He's given a job by the butcher in Egypt. And he, sees, and he sees that whatever he does, God is with him. Everybody's able to see that this individual, Yosef, whatever he does, God is with him. Then he continues to tell us where the wife of Potiphar tries to seduce him. And what does he say? and will be a sin to God. His reaction is, I can't do something because I can't desecrate God's name. His concern at every time and every point and every turn was about God. Every part of his life. 
He was in prison and he said, and he told the people, I'll be able to answer you if God gives me explanation. Pharaoh pulls him out of the dungeon and says, give me an interpretation. He says, without God, I can't interpret any dream in this week's Torah reading. And afterwards, God, Pharaoh even says, is there anybody in Egypt that has such a God, divine intuition, that just like you? What do we see from here? Yosef was a person who personified godliness. He personified having God being illogical. Always thinking about God, not about yourself. This exactly was what the Greeks wanted. The opposite. They said, right on the horn of an ox that you don't believe in God. What were they saying? We want to eradicate anything Yosef was about. Yosef was about bringing God into every part of your life. We want to eradicate that Yosef and therefore ride on the ox, on the horn of an ox, which means Yosef, that you don't believe in God, meaning to say, get rid of that belief of Yosef to bring God into everything you do. Now we can understand as well of why and how the, uh, the miracle of Hanukkah was set. Why was it all about the miracle of the oil and not about the victory of the war? The victory of the war was one day. Many people win victories. Many wars, and even in the victory of the war, went on even after the story of Hanukkah. But the oil symbolizes the Judaism. The difference is that while all enemies tried to kill Jews, the Greeks tried to kill Judaism. While all enemies tried to kill our bodies, the Greeks tried to kill our souls. And because of this, the way we celebrate is also we celebrate differently. While every other holiday we celebrate with a festive meal by feeding our body, that's why in Hanukkah it's not a mitzvah to feed our body because it wasn't about our bodies, it wasn't about the Jews they were killing, they were trying to wipe out Judaism and therefore we light the menorah. We light the oil symbolic of showing, yes, we are a nation which is above and beyond logic. We are a nation which is not about necessarily our bodies, it's about our souls. And therefore, as the Ta'al Code of Jewish Law tells us, the way we celebrate is by giving thanks to God, by lighting the Hanukkah menorah, because it's not about our bodies that we're saved, it's about the ability to continue to celebrate Judaism. But this takes it a step further. With this, we can understand even more so about what the war of the Greeks was. The war of the Greeks was that they understood and appreciated theology. They understood intellectualism. They understood philosophy. They understood all these wonderful things. And therefore they said, we have no problem with the Jews studying it, even in the most and greatest way. But what didn't they want? They didn't want us to study something which is beyond logic. They didn't want us to see something and only do it because we understand it. In fact, the greatest wonder of Jewish people is that we do things because we don't understand it, despite not understanding it. Because how we are able to even think that we can understand the infinite wisdom of God. The Torah is not just a book of theology. The Torah is God's recipe for us to how to connect and relate to God. If God not giving us the commandment that we can study, the Torah would never be able to understand it. So what we're celebrating on Hanukkah is the concept and the ideas that God gave us the ability, number one, that we can even delve into God's wisdom, that we even can touch God's wisdom. Because technically God's thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways, we never have that ability. And the very fact that God gives us a little bit of a taste, that we can touch His wisdom, all of a sudden we think we figured it all out. It's like saying, you know, they give medicine. You have Tylenol for children. It's cherry flavored, grape flavored. 
What's the flavor there? The flavor is there that you should be able to take the Tylenol because to take it on its own, it'll be very bitter. Is anybody going to say that the flavor is the medicine? You've got to be out of your mind. The flavor is only there that you should be able to understand it. The same idea is also the very fact that we can understand some parts of Torah is only to give us the ability to appreciate the rest of the Torah. But the rest of the Torah, what's the main part? It's not the flavor, not the part we understand. It's the part that we don't understand. So as much as we understand it, and as much as we appreciate it, the fact that we understand it is only a minuscule of what the whole Torah is really all about. Even more so. When the Torah tells us something that we do understand, for example, not to kill. And every logical person is going to come along and say, of course, I'm not allowed to kill. What do I need the Torah to tell us? But Maimonides says that when we are told by the Torah not to kill, we have to keep the commandment, not because it's logical not to kill, but because the Torah told us it's not to kill. And what's the difference? Because if I do it because of my own logic, today my logic is one way, tomorrow my logic can be another way. If I do it because God told me to do it, then it's eternal. It doesn't change. And that's what God wants us to be connected to the Torah in an everlasting and an eternal way, in an infinite way. And the only way is if we study it because it's God's Torah. And this is exactly what the Greeks believed, or the opposite of what the Greeks believed. The Greeks believed that we, have, we believe in God only because of our intellect. By Jews, we believe that we have intellect only because of God. And it's how we set it up to be able to understand and how we dedicate ourselves to it. Which brings us to the bottom line. That we find in many different things. Take for example, how would you know who is a Jew in today's day and age? You see somebody wearing a yarmulke. Does it say anywhere in the Torah you have to wear a yarmulke? It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah you have to wear a yarmulke. The Torah, it's not even in the Mishnah, it's not even in the Talmud. In the Talmud, it brings a story that there was a fellow by the name of Rabbona that he wouldn't go four steps without, four amos, four handbreadths without a head covered. And he said that because the Shechina, the divine presence is above my head, therefore I can't walk without a, without a head covering. The Talmud also tells us a story by Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak that astrologer said, told his mother that when he grows up, he's going to be a thief. So his mother said, a thief. So his mother said, when, she, when he was a child, she always made sure his head was covered. Like this, he'll never, he'll always, had, he'll always think about God, so he'll never steal. One time, his yarmulke fell off his head, and he was accused of stealing, because he took a few dates that fell off under a tree that didn't belong to him, just because his yarmulke fell off his head. So you see that the concept of the yarmulke we see is that a yarmulke is something which reminds a person to know that there is God above you. Eventually, because it became law, even though it was not in the Torah, according to the Code of Jewish Law, today a yarmulke became a prohibition. You're not to go without a yarmulke. But what is it about? What is the yarmulke telling us if we think about a yarmulke? The yarmulke is reminding us that there's something above us. The yarmulke reminds us that we're not just here on our own. We're here with the purpose of God. We're here and we have a purpose in this world. And we have an objective to do. We're not just human beings of great understanding of intellect. Mm -hmm. We have something that we have to do. An interesting story is told by Shalom Bar Lipsker Shlich, the Rebbe in Florida, in Bell Harbor, Florida, says a fascinating story. He says that, you know, his first years when he moved to Bell Harbor, Florida, he had this menorah that he would light with some kerosene lamps. And throughout the whole street, it was full of, you can imagine, the holiday season had lamps and lights galore. And he would always think to himself, I get this little shabby menorah, people even barely even notice that it's here. 
What am I amongst the millions and millions of lights that are here? Until one day, there was a storm, and all the lights went out. And then the only lights that were burning were the lights of the menorah, and it illuminated everything that was there. Sometimes, the only time we realize that we are this light is when all the other lights go out. Mm-hmm. What the Torah is telling us and what the miracle of Hanukkah is telling us, that we are oil. Oil is that intellect. An uncontaminated oil. An oil that is infinite and is connected to divine. An oil that floats above but saturates everything that's there. An oil of not only a wisdom of the Torah, but divine wisdom of the Torah. A wisdom that cannot become contaminated. A wisdom that will always be there. And a wisdom that connects us with the infinite. It's only a matter of tapping into that wisdom. Making it part of our life. And then we can be that oil, that menorah, that stays burning when all the lights go out.